We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. Hey, great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing Foreign Minister Joseph Wu saying the government could take steps to extend the duration of work visas issued to Filipino nationals and also work towards allowing them to seek permanent residency. But at the same time, also in a newspaper interview, maybe pushing a foreign government too far to do something else. The Taoyuan International Airport being utilised as a Hanguang exercise training ground for the first time. The government pledging to support Palau amid Chinese pressure, the National Communications Commission finally approving Mirror TV's application to operate a cable news television channel, and the government choosing to maintain the three-metre rule for motorists on crosswalks despite ongoing concerns about pedestrian safety. But we'll begin with some of the latest election-related news this week that's been making headlines, and the question of whether to restart talks with Beijing on the cross-strait service trade agreement loomed large there, with those questions being sparked by a report claiming that Taiwan People's Party presidential candidate Ke Wen-je was advocating for a resumption of negotiations with Beijing on the agreement. Now, Ke responded to that report, saying he's not really actually advocating for that, and talks of the CSA. STA was simply one element of a wider internal discussion on issues of concern. And Kerr went on to say that while he was opposed to the way the then KMT government in 2014 attempted to ram its ratification through the legislature, he didn't actually oppose the agreement himself as long as it was properly and democratically reviewed. Needless to say, KMT presidential candidate Ho Yoi was quick to wade into the fray, telling reporters that he believes talks should not only resume in an effort to revive that agreement, but also begin regarding bilateral, cultural, economic and trade issues. Ho also took the opportunity to take a shot over Kerr's bow by saying he supported the student-led sunflower movement's efforts to block the China agreement in 2014. Now, the DPP's Lai Qingde came out guns blazing on the issue, arguing that reviving the cross-strait service trade agreement with China in order to link Taiwan and China's market goes against current global trends and is also not in Taiwan's economic interests. And he went on to accuse those pushing to revive the pact as being ignorant of current international trends. So, Donovan, the argument revolves around a pact that was basically shelved in 2014. Yes. Uh, at the time, uh, obviously, Cohen was came out uh, opposed to it. Now, he's been taking contradictory stance. Each day it seems that he, he's taking a different stance over the you know, over the last week. Basically he's he's taken the stance that he was for it, he was against it, he was against the black box or the 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 opaque negotiations of it, and then he came out you know, he then he came out for it and then he yet again came out and said, oh, well, you know, I'm for the idea of it, but I don't want it to be implemented all in one go. So we really don't know where Cohen stands on this at at this point. You know, so each day he's got a different stance, and at at some point he's going to have to come down uh, what he, he exactly stands for and where he's going with this. And at this point, we have absolutely no idea. Now, the pact itself was kind of scary. It included uh, companies coming 
and China getting involved in the financial sector, the, including the national, they would have would have had um, in the medical industry, they would have had access to the national health insurance industry uh, and the databases. Um, they, in other words, the, the entire pact itself, itself would have given access to the United Front from China to they would have given them vast access to our financial system, to our national health insurance databases, uh, to all kinds of industries. Now, of course, there's some industries, such as, say, hairdressing, where it might not have been entirely scary, but uh, there's a lot of a lot of industries that they would have been given back-end access to, and we already know, you know, they are heavily involved in industrial espionage. So, you know, I mean, it's it, it was it, it's kind of a scary pact to endorse. And when in 2014, when Kobanja came out against it, it was a powerful message. And now that he's, you know, jumping back and forth and not actually being able to take a stand and from day to day that it, he, you know, his stance isn't isn't clear it's really kind of unclear why he's doing this he claimed uh, in, in that he wants everyone's votes people have criticized him for saying oh you just want to get deep blue votes by jumping in on this but again he's jumping in and out on this so we actually have no idea where he stands so yeah that's right i mean co is elected in 2014 on the basis of support from the Sunfire Generation, and they threw their weight behind him. And so this is seen as a reversal. Uh, Ko has changed position on many issues. Originally, he was perceived as much for a pan-green candidate, and at this point, he's perceived as more pan-blue. But this is still a, quite a large reversal for him, so to the question why he decided to take a stand on this issue. One theory is perhaps that he, he seeks to upstage Hoyoi, the KMT candidate, for example, by angling for Chinese support, by expressing support for this trade deal, in the hopes that China will then back him rather than Ho. That is one possibility. It could also just be an idea that he threw out there. And uh, I think his waffling on the issue shows to what extent that it is viewed as just co-changing position entirely. And the trade deal itself is quite interesting because I think for the Pan Blue camp as a whole, particularly the KMT specifically, the Obama administration, despite how large the protests were in 2014, the form of the Sunfire Movement, the month-long occupation of the legislative ren that took place in reaction to the trade agreement, mobilizing up to 500,000 on March 30th, 2014, that's now viewed as a high point for the KMT, rather than a point of significant protest, because since then the KMT has suffered uh, successive electoral defeats. And now in this time of potential conflict with China uh, after the war in Ukraine and so forth, in which there's further discussion of the odds of war breaking out, economic engagement is what the KMT has really kind of gone back to in terms of saying that it is the party of peace while framing the DPP as the party of war. And so that leads to the CSSTA being brought out again as the last major trade agreement that the KMT and Pan Blue Camp tried to push for. And this idea has now been reintroduced into the discourse. And so it is interesting that now Hoyoi has been pushed into endorsing this. And so that might not be to his favor if there's still significant public backlash against the CSSTA in its revived form. 
Uh, the DPP, on the other hand, is running a slate that, to some extent, consists of former Sun Farm movement activists that are now young politicians. And so this is another way in which the politics of a decade prior, of nine years prior, is still salient. But then, in the meantime, the Pam Lucamp has dug their heels in on a familiar stance. And Donovan, I mean, obviously Washington washes Taiwan politics very closely. It apparently doesn't opt for any candidate. But how do you think Washington would react if the person that wins the next election here does decide to negotiate with Beijing on this agreement? I don't think they would be very happy with it, frankly. I mean, right now you've got the, the U.S. has been, they were initially talking about decoupling, and then they started copying the European language on de-risking when they realized that they couldn't entirely decouple from the Chinese economy. But essentially what you've got with Kulenja bringing up this issue again is you have much of the free world and by which we're referring to you know democracies and in, in these countries that have decided to start pulling back from strategic in industries that are engaging with china it's to try and move them to other countries like vietnam and india and then you have coenza who's talking about actually not decoupling or de-risking. He's talking about coupling and risking Taiwan's economy with China's economy and ensuring that the influence of the United Front coming out of China is enhanced and their ability to conduct industrial espionage within Taiwan is increased but again, he's not making it very clear exactly what the limits will be and how fast it will happen. Hoyoe has just simply jumped all in, and you know. And now, obviously, Lai Qingde from the DVP, he's totally against any kind of engagement at all. So, I mean, at this point, you know, it's 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 kind of a weird debate because it seems like the whole issue was over. In 2014, hundreds of thousands of people came out in the streets and shut this whole debate down. So I'm, I, it's honestly a little bit weird that it's come back up because it seemed, you know, the public was pretty firmly and wholly and, and quite unified against it back in 2014. And Brian, I mean, do you think the KMT is wringing its hands going, oh, no, this issue's come again, while the <laughs> DPP is simply laughing in the corner? Well, to be seen, I mean, the KMT, I feel like, is somewhat short-sighted these days in which things that ideas, ideas that seemed bad in the past now seem like good ideas. And so this is one example. The world is very different in 2014. 2014, when the Sunfire movement broke out, that was only two years into Xi Jinping's presidential term. And so we have not had these uh, various things that have taken place, such as in Xinjiang or Hong Kong and so forth. And the KMT really leaned to the narrative of sowing doubt about U.S.-Taiwan relations, for example, regarding TSMC and attempts to strengthen economic uh, cooperation or semiconductor cooperation. And then now it's calling for cooperation with China, which is also then, if there's already this doubt about the U.S., I think one expects doubt to be all the much higher regarding China. And so it is actually a bit questionable there. But sometimes they just think that maybe trotting this out again in a changed climate perhaps it will work.
Moving on now, and Foreign Minister Joseph Wu this week said the government could take steps to extend the duration of work visas issued to Filipino nationals and also work towards allowing them to seek permanent residency here. Now, he made those comments in an interview with the Philippine Star newspaper, in which he said the plans related to the government's efforts to boost Taiwan's migrant workforce, but he also turned stum there and said discussions are ongoing and no details will be released until the plans have been finalised. But he did say that, well, Maybe if Taiwan allows these extensions to visas and gives Filipino workers a residency in Taiwan, maybe Manila could then grant visa-free entry to the Philippines to ROC passport holders. And he went on to describe Filipino workers as being an integral part of Taiwanese society and said their presence in Taiwan is much appreciated, Brian. So, I mean... There's been, of course, major problems in recent years, in past years, in fact, even before the recent years I just mentioned, concerning migrant workers in Taiwan and their actual status here. So do you you see the government actually going through with this? So it's a question because I think oftentimes a protection strand comes up uh, whenever you talk about, for example, increasing quotas on migrant workers or allowing for more ways for them to stay through residency programs. Uh, there's a fear of competition for one, but also then Taiwan is just not too friendly to immigration historically. And so this idea being brought up, I mean, it's to be questioned. Uh, there's historically not been a way for migrant workers to have permanent residency in Taiwan. And that's something the government claims will change with the introduction of categories such as intermediate skilled manpower. But that still is up to the employer. Uh, The migrant workers themselves are the mercies of employers when it comes to whether they can qualify for the status or not. And it still takes significant years, over a decade, to just get there. And so now we talk about this uh, plan to bring in more migrant workers. And there are industries in Taiwan that are quite starved for labor. Uh, For example, the factory industry, uh, manufacturing, particularly the electronics industry which, of course, is key for Taiwan's uh, place in global supply chains, but also agriculture. And uh, there's significant shortages every season. And oftentimes what has happened is that there's a kind of dependency on a floating population of undocumented migrant workers that are actually necessary for these industries to function, and particularly also for small to medium-sized enterprises or small farms that are not actually very large. They have difficulties uh, filling out the paperwork just to secure migrant workers. And so there are a lot of these blockages. And then whenever which country allows for more migrant workers than to come to Taiwan, I mean, Taiwan has also dilemmas there regarding its relation with those countries, what countries it allows in, and Taiwan also has to then be attractive enough to migrant workers they want to come to Taiwan, while at the same time keeping costs low enough that employers then are willing to hire migrant workers and don't view this as unnecessarily expensive and so forth. And of course, Donovan Bryan made a point there. If the Filipino nationals become residents, obviously the local employers will have to pay them more money. Yes, and the thing is that sometimes the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, or MOFA, gets a little bit ahead of other departments in the government, which tend to be a lot more conservative when it, when it comes to bringing in uh, foreign workers. The thing is, is that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs doesn't actually decide a lot of these things. It has to go through other departments in the government, and they're, they're probably going to view this a lot more conservatively than MOFA will. And so Joseph Wu was probably getting a little, he's putting the cart ahead of the horse on this one. Of course, that's not the first time he's done that, Brian. (laughs) No, not at all. And of course, in the article, Brian, in the newspaper, he actually, he called on the Philippine government to say, if Taiwan does this, can you give us visa-free entry into the Philippines? Which, of course, may, should he be making that call in a newspaper interview? Or maybe that call should have been made in a private conversation with someone from the Manila office here? 
it's a good question, but it could be a way to try to pressure the Philippines publicly by stating this or floating this idea. And so that's to be seen, I think. Donovan. Yeah, no, I mean, in his calls recently for the Australians to uh, put a somebody from the mil- military here into Taiwan, and I, I kind of feel like Joseph Wu's gone a little bit, again, he's been using the press, I think, to pressure uh, governments into things which they may would they they almost certainly would have preferred were dealt with privately, and so I, I'm a little bit concerned here. I think he's gone a little bit uh, rogue in a sense uh, in that there there are certain things that you want to share with the press, and there are certain things that you probably want to discuss privately first. Now, the 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 thing that we don't know is how much on these issues has been discussed privately, and maybe they were, and he's just gone ahead and figured that he can actually get public support, both in the target countries and domestically, and maybe this is, is a good strategy. We don't actually know at this point what's gone on behind closed doors up until this point, so we can't really say. Um, but if, if, if this is a preemptive way of doing this, then I can see why foreign governments would be concerned. But if he figures he can get, you know, public support in 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 the target countries and domestically for these things when foreign countries are prevaricating, it could be extremely smart strategically. But it's a little bit hard to say. I think concerned, Brian, was a bit of an understatement there. <laughs> well, I think it's a question then regarding negotiations, because particularly closed-door negotiations, it's possible they could be sunk if details are revealed publicly. But then I think what is interesting is the way in which government bureaus do fight over such issues between the Ministry of Labor, MOFA, uh, Economic Affairs, various parts of the executive run. And so there's so many stakeholders there here. Actually getting them together on one page or agreeing to something is quite difficult. And so there are these kind of questions. I mean, the question is to what extent does he have a domestic audience or an international audience? And going in a completely different direction now, Transport Minister Wang Guotsai on Wednesday confirmed that the Ministry of National Defence will be conducting an anti-air landing exercise at Taoyuan International Airport on July the 26th. The drill is part of the live fire phase of this year's Hanguang exercise and will last about two hours, with the Transport Minister telling reporters that the airport's north runway will be closed, operations on the south runway will be limited and at least 61 flights and some 4,000 travellers will be affected. He also said that the Civil Air Aeronautics Administration, the Airport Corporation and the Defence Ministry are still in talks regarding how to minimise disruptions to air traffic. So, Brian, this comes as Taiwan is trying to attract thousands and thousands more tourists today. Yeah, that's right, ironically. And so it is quite interesting because I think uh, part of the reason why so many tourists have come to Taiwan is they see it in the news much more often. And sometimes that raises Taiwan's profile. However, it's also because of these Chinese military threats directed at Taiwan. And so it's actually quite interesting that there was not a lot of uh, discussion, for example, of such scenarios in the past, because one of the things that would occur in the event of an invasion uh, from China is that they would try to take the airports, because that's how you get a lot of goods into Taiwan, uh, whether that's in terms of supplies or just manpower for an occupation, uh, troops, and so forth. And so taking an airport while minimizing damage to infrastructure is something that they would try to do. And that's true of both Taiwan International Airport, but also Songshan Airport. 
And when Nancy Pelosi, for example, came to Taiwan in August uh, 2022, there was an anti-aircraft uh, uh, artillery set up at the airport in Songshan Airport in case someone tried to attack the airplane with drones and so forth. But then for this kind of invasion scenario, this is less discussed. And so it reflects that there's much more discussion of potential scenarios for an invasion that this is taking place now. My question, though, is, Brian, these poor passengers... That's true. I mean, it'll be to seen how long these disruptions are, but we also do have these disruptions that occur due to Chinese drilling at points sometimes as well. Donovan. Viewed from central Taiwan, I just find this kind of amusing because, you know, they've repeatedly shut down uh, the freeway in Zhanghua, just to the south of me, so they could practice uh, landing on the freeway here. Um, you know, but as soon as you get to well-paid travelers going in and out of uh, the international airport, it becomes a big issue. Uh, but they'll happily shut down, in, you know, crucial infrastructure in places like Zhanghua and, you know, uh, obviously make people inconvenienced, uh, you know, uh, on, an e- on a regular and consistent basis but when it comes to Taoyuan and the international airport there it becomes a much more widely discussed issue in the Taipei press which of course really doesn't really doesn't consider any kind of issues you know once once you get past the MRT line which reaches of course Taoyuan uh, once the MRT reaches its its fullest extent, the rest of the country basically doesn't exist. So I kind of feel like this is a non-story. Of course, they should be using the uh, Taipei. Uh, they should be using the Songshan Airport and and Taoyuan, uh, you know, the, the Taoyuan International Airport. They should be using both. Uh, to test these kinds of systems. Why they haven't done it before now is a little bit baffling, to be completely honest, but it does kind of feel political, and they do seem to care about who they're inconveniencing more than national security, which, again, if you're from central Taiwan and you see the freeway being shut down here in central Taiwan so they can test landing efforts for F-16s on the freeway locally, but they won't use the international airport. It does seem weird. But, of course, Brian, this comes with a rather whopping bill because when you delay airlines, they're stuck at the other end of their flights, paying money, (laughs) of course, and spending fuel. That's true, and so many airlines may not be too happy with that. And I would like to say that local transport companies and taxi drivers and travel coaches and all these people, they also have to pay money in Zhanghua when they shut down the Zhanghua stretch of the of the freeway. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And the government this week pledged to continue to support Palau amid increasing pressure from China for the Pacific ally to sever former ties with Taiwan in favour of Beijing. The statement came after Palau's president, Surangola Whips, was quoted by India's Sunday Guardian newspaper as saying China remains the biggest investor in his country and has asked for more direct flights despite the lack of official diplomatic ties. Now, Whips went on to say that Palau is trying to build a more diverse and resilient economy to limit China's influence, but he went on to say 
it's hard to say no to Chinese money as his country's economy was devastated by the coronavirus pandemic. Now, here in Taiwan, the Tsai administration, of course, has been making great hay of its ties with Palau and touting the island as a place for holiday makers to go. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here this week responded to Whips' comments, but without actually addressing them, with a spokesperson saying only that Taiwan has done its best to help Palau develop tourism and is actively assisting its ally in terms of development and will continue to work with like-minded countries regarding such efforts. So, Donovan, obviously Palau wants money. Is China's going to give him money? Palau might say, hey, no problemo. Uh, but here the government doesn't seem to be able to actually help Palau very much when you think about it in the long term. Well, they, at its peak, Taiwan was sending over 40,000 uh, tourists there, but mostly in recent years it's been over 30,000 annually. Um, but keep in mind that Palau is an economy that individual department stores in some countries actually generate more revenue than the entire country. And I can actually look out my window right now and see a baseball stadium whose capacity has... The capacity of the local baseball stadium here is actually larger than the entire population of Palau. So Taiwan's ability to help Palau is actually quite high. I mean, it it has 17,000-some-odd people, and it's tiny. So what Taiwan should be doing, I believe... Because, you know, Whips has gone out of his way and very vocally and very publicly in a lot of public fora has stood up for Taiwan and shown his support for Taiwan and has very publicly stood against uh, China as an international dictatorship and been very vocal in doing so. So Taiwan's ability to help the 17,000-some-odd-plus people in Palau is very high. So the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has been a little bit prevaricating or vague on this. They should be a little bit more vocal, but they also need to get other government departments. As we spoke about earlier, sometimes MOFA gets a little bit ahead, you know, puts the cart ahead of the horse on things. So it needs to start working with other government departments and doing something for Palau because, you know, there's so much that Taiwan can do, um, you know, and, you know, it's such a small population, a small area. There is a – and apparently it's a very beautiful place from everything I've heard from what people have told me who've gone there as tourists – so there's a lot that Taiwan can do. So, you know, get on it. Yeah, uh, so Taiwan is often too hesitant, I think, when it comes to this. Um, Taiwan could never outspend China, of course, when it comes to throwing money at some place. But Palau, it's, uh, it is smaller than Taiwan, and Taiwan is larger than all of its diplomatic allies. I think particularly, though, the question is how to balance the needs of tourism for such a tourism-dependent economy. And so tourism between Taiwan and China, this question of who is the bigger spender, how much more tourists from one place or another go there, and those all factor in that calculation. But I think particularly for Palau, the other issue, I think, is just the geostrategic position of Palau. And another factor, then, is the U.S. involvement. How much will the U.S., for example, act to try to maintain diplomatic allies of Taiwan? 
And so I think oftentimes then when it comes to the leaders of small countries that have diplomatic relations with Taiwan, they end up in this kind of negotiating position in which they do try to better the position for their own countries by seeing what kind of uh, concessions they can get from either side. And so that is perhaps what is happening. But then Taiwan perhaps could do more. It's actually not that hard. Oftentimes it is caught up in bureaucracy or hesitancy on certain issues or just past dependency on traditional tested means when there are other ways of diplomacy. And Brian, you think if Palau did decide to sever ties with Taiwan in favour of Beijing, the government would then go all out to say, don't travel to Palau? Um, it's possible. Well, not exactly, but uh, I think that it would cut all funding. Uh, particularly students, for example, from Palau, though, would be caught in between, and that's uh, quite unfortunate that their scholarships to study in Taiwan would be cut. And even things like that, you know, there's often a easy diplomatic win for Taiwan to take the high moral ground and provide support to students, even after the, the official relations have been severed. And that is usually not what the government does. Instead, there's a lot of dragging of feet and uh, not clear positions on what they will do on the issue. I think it's worth noting that Palau's president whips has been very vocal and very consistent uh, in his support for Taiwan and against uh a dictatorship in China. So at least as long as I think that he is the president, I think that Taiwan has a fairly firm ally in Palau. And the National Communications Commission on Wednesday of this week approved Mirror TV's application to operate its news show on Channel 86 on 32 cable networks here. And Mirror TV could now begin broadcasting on that channel as early as mid-July. The application was approved more than 500 days, though, after the NCC granted the company a broadcast license to operate a news channel. Final approval was given in a four-to-none vote of the seven-seat commission, with two members casting blank ballots and Vice Chairman Wang Bo-Tsong simply abstaining. Now, he abstained from the vote because he's been accused of leaking information regarding the NCC's review of Mirror TV's request for replacement of its board directors and supervisors in November of last year. But, of course, Brian, Mirror TV's licence application has been rather controversial and members of the KMT were actually protesting outside the offices of the NCC when they finalised it this week. That's right. And the allegation is that the Tsai administration, specifically Tsai Ing-wen herself, the president, and Premier Su Chong tried to pressure the NCC to approve the application. The framing is then that Mirror is more pan-green and the pan-green camp is acting to ensure there's another pan-green outlet out there. In many ways, this is trying to take retribution for the uh, non-renewal of the broadcast license of CTI-TV, the pan-blue want-want group-owned outlet. And so this issue has come up again. And some of the framing is that, for example, members of the National Communications Commission have backgrounds in movements against the buying up of Taiwanese media outlets by pro-China Taiwanese businessmen, such as of the Wantman Group, uh, and that they came out of the anti-media monopoly, that uh, movement that predated the Sunflower Movement. And so then this has come up with regards to this. Uh, questions have been raised regarding the changes of staff, key staff for Mir. Uh, questions regarding Chinese influence as well have been raised by the NCC. Uh, will there be efforts to fact-check, for example, or have an ombudsman system in order to make sure that there is not disinformation or misinformation being spread? Because I think apart from the question of Chinese influence, there's also the concern about just perhaps the tabloid-style news that Mir may have following uh, Mir media as a whole. And so that, that's been raised. But in the meantime, the Pan Blue Camp has framed this as simply the Tsai administration trying to distribute propaganda through ensuring that it itself has control over media. I mean, I follow Mirror daily, and I, I don't find them particularly sensationalistic compared to the rest of the media in the country, although they are, to be blunt. Um, relatively speaking, they're, they're fairly mild, but 
but the the NCC is enforcing a dividing line between the the magazine and the TV station. Um, now Brian's right. This a lot of this goes back to the anti-China influence uh, movements in the media, and uh, which does predate the Sunflower Movement. But one thing that I think everyone should be a little concerned about is that the NPP, the New Power Party, which actually came out of the Sunflower Movement, is also against... Uh, they feel that this was there was not proper o- oversight exercised in uh, giving this license to mirror media. And if they, coming out of that movement, also have concerns about the way the process was conducted, and keep in mind that three out of the seven board members either didn't vote or abstained, the whole process does look somewhat compromised or not exactly fair. It, plus, the legislature also passed a, 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 a bill advocating some oversight over this process, which wasn't respected by the NCC. And now you've got a situation where the KMT is going to not review the NCC's budget going forward. And so when you add this all up together, it doesn't really it doesn't really come together very comfortably in the sense that that this is reasonable or fair. And what, because when you get a situation where you've got the NPP, the TPP, and the KMT, the other three parties in the legislature all uniting together against this a process, you know that there's something wrong. But of course, Brian, is Mirror Media... Mirror TV, will it, I mean, obviously Mirror Media, this week broke the news that resulted in the resignation of a presidential office spokesperson. I think the framing is ironic then that one outlet frames is more uh, pan-green or pan-blue because oftentimes you do have outlets that actually go after both camps. But then I think partisanship in Taiwan is so strong that outlets are framed as belong squarely to one camp or another. It's actually very difficult to be bipartisan or nonpartisan in the media sphere in this sense. And so uh, the framing is that way, but it is also true that historically media has had a large influence on the politics of both camps. We talked a bit about the Want Want group earlier, but the Want Want group and its outlets that it owns really leaned into trying to support Han Gori, for example, for the KMT presidential candidate in 2020. And that was an attempt to act as a kingmaker and create the candidate that they wanted and push for him to become the KMT's presidential candidate. In the meantime, on the other side of the political spectrum, SET, for example, SET News, is very tied to a specific DPP faction that they funded. And so then media has very uh, played a very powerful role in Taiwanese politics on both sides. And so I think there is a right to be concerned about links between media and the conglomerates that back them to political parties. And so the question is, is there oversight? And I think that points to how murky the media sector can be in Taiwan. And before we go this week, the Ministry of Transport on Monday confirmed that the government will be maintaining its current three-metre rule on yielding to pedestrians on crosswalks. The rule requires vehicles to be at least three metres away from any person when driving over said crosswalk. Now, the decision not to revise the regulations comes after Transport Minister Wang Guotsai last week reversed plans to require motorists to come to a full stop for all pedestrians on crosswalks. Now, the minister described the planned rule as being too strict and said there was no reason to make the current crosswalk yield 
building rule any stricter, as apparently people are already used to the three-metre rule. Experts instead are calling on the Ministry of Transport to come up with better measures to protect pedestrian safety, such as raising more awareness and promoting more always stops at intersections. And from today, as a series of amendments to the Road Traffic Management and Penalty Act take effect, motorists caught failing to yield to pedestrians on crosswalks, well, the fine for that's now being raised to 6,000 NT. Drivers who fail to allow pedestrians to pass first, either at pedestrian crossings or other areas designated for crossing areas of a road, will also be required to attend traffic safety lectures. And under the new rules, drivers who fail to stop for pedestrians at crossings or other areas that result in injury or death will face a maximum fine of 36,000 NT and could have their driving licences suspended for one year or revoked. So, Brian, that's a bit of a kick in the face, so to speak, for pedestrians as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a different sudden reversal, uh, and that is a deep issue of driving culture in Taiwan, that drivers often will just plow into pedestrian crossings and people have to just scurry out of the way. And I think oftentimes pedestrians don't really realize sometimes when they have the right of way. Uh, this has led Taiwan to be termed a pedestrian hell, and it seems like now there's lacking measures to really try and change that. And I don't think this flip-flopping helps either regarding efforts to change this culture in Taiwan, because then it shows when the government officials back down quickly in the face of opposition. Yeah, 36,000 NT for death or injury. That's the maximum fine. All right, they could go to prison, but I mean, really, that's pretty pathetic, Brian. Yeah, it's not that much for the cost of a human life. And then 6,000 NT if some schmuck drives out in front of me. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's just a slap on the wrist. And so this uh, uh, it's a question of whether punitive measures can really change these uh, this deeply entrenched culture of, of driving in this way. But it's still be a question further than if you just have such light penalties. So, Donovan, dracu- more draconian measures for schmucks <laughs> in vehicles on sidewalks and crosswalks and everywhere else. No, frankly, three meters is reasonable. I think, you know, pulling up and stopping and letting people cross at three meters away from them, I think that's pretty reasonable, frankly. Um, you know, it, the thing is, is the culture of how people approach driving needs to change. But, you know, I think that a three-meter gap between, you know, when a pedestrian is crossing a road and stopping and letting that person cross, I think that's perfectly reasonable. But do you think these new rules, Brian, will stop motorists from trying to, oh, I can just, I can do it now. I can turn right and turn <laughs> left and I can be three metres away. They're not paying attention, really. They just think they are. Yeah, I think that's an issue. And then I think people often don't realize their rights. I see all these accidents and people just let the driver drive away and you just see someone that like got hit by a scooter or just like flew off a scooter or some pedestrian and they just let the driver get away. And I think that's the issue, actually. So I, I actually don't know how to change this then. I think you guys live in Taipei and you've got a lot of uh, MRT and bus and uh, you know, public transport and you know, sometimes a little bit smug when it comes to dealing with the you know the rest of the country where you have a, you have to ride a scooter you have to ride a motorcycle you have to drive a car so i think there's an attitude in taipei where people are sitting in their air conditioned offices and rode the mrt and you know into work and like to dictate what the rest of the country should do i think that it has to be there is a genuine problem of uh, vehicles not stopping, you know, at a zebra crossing. But again, I think that a three-meter rule waiting for the person to cross is not an unreasonable one. And so, yeah, I think the government was right on this one. 
Well, I mean, issues of traffic safety uh, are present everywhere in Taiwan, and you have traffic accidents ebbing everywhere. And I think that's not just an issue of Taipei. It's not an issue just of people having public transport in Taipei, and so nobody rides scooters or drives cars. I mean, you look at New Taipei or other places like that. This happens in places in Taipei, even just in like literally downtown Taipei. I actually run into people drag racing in the dead of night, and so I don't think it's an issue of just Taipei or the rest of the country. I don't think it can be framed in that. I'm talking about bureaucrats, and they're either driven in in chauffeured cars. Or they tend to take the MRT. Here in Taichung, we run into this issue repeatedly, where decisions are made by people in Taipei who have absolutely no clue what the conditions are on the ground here in Taichung. And this whole issue about the you know people being hit at a pedestrian crosswalk started here in Taichung, and that was a horrific incident. And you know we reported on it here on ICRT, and that incident absolutely should not have happened. It was a bus where you know hit a family and you know left the kid and the wife dead. Um, it was just an absolute nightmare. Now, if you 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 know reduce the speed coming into the into the the crosswalk. And require that they have to stop and look before the you know the, it turns and leave three meters. That's reasonable, um, but their original plans definitely seem to come out of the, the vapored minds of air-conditioned people in Taipei. I think this is this is far more reasonable than what was than what they they were trying to uh, impose on the rest of the country. And that's where we have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And from Taichung by the enemy of the pedestrian, Donovan Smith. <laughs> I'm no enemy of the pedestrian. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.